Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. So um, we are doing a series all of April called Before and After Easter, and our, our goal is to kind of, during the before part of Easter, is to kind of look at the week, the Passion Week that led right up to the cross and the different events in Jesus' life. And it's interesting, most of the time when you study a historical figure, not much is given to the last week or month or so of that person's life. In the Gospels, about a third of the material we know about Jesus have to do with this last week, the Passion Week. And so, um, and then eventually we're going to land in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning there to John chapter 18. So, but all five weeks, we're just going to look at Jesus. And that's, that's always good when we get our eyes up and look at, at who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Next week, obviously, Easter Sunday, uh, celebrate the empty tomb. The following week, we want to celebrate the ascension of Jesus, that he reigns and rules in heaven right now. A lot of times we stop at Easter and then just kind of go on. So I'm excited about that week. And then the last week, to talk about the return of Christ. So all five Sundays in April, looking at Jesus before and after Easter. And the other part about that title, before and after, is that I really believe that if you look at Christ and you look at what Jesus came to do for us, that there's a before and after in our story as well. That before we meet Jesus, uh, before we understand the gospel, before we understand what Jesus came to do, we are one way, but then when we meet Jesus, our lives can be flipped and changed. And that's actually not just a one-time event. Like that's the, the idea of the gospel is that Jesus wants to continue flipping us and taking old things in our lives and making them new. And so one of those things you're going to see this morning is this whole concept of being a rock, okay? So I want you to think about in your life, who would you say are the rocks in your life? Those that, not thick-headed, like slow people that slow you down. I'm thinking more positive, like who is your refuge, your rock, the people that have been there for you? in your hard times, in, in your good times, just the constant faithful presence in your life. And even this morning when I'm bumping around the church, I just see many of you that have been rocks for me or for my family at different times. Or I see those of you guys that are rocks I know for other people. And so that concept of being a rock, what you're going to see this morning is that Jesus is the ultimate rock. As he is going through the intensity of the trials and the beatings, you're just going to see him walk through those with a constant resolve because he clings to his identity, who he is, and what God has called him to do. And when I think about the rocks in my life, sometimes I think of the flip side of that, like who are the people in my life that I'm supposed to be that rock? Like so if you're married, you think of that, like am I that kind of spouse for my wife? If you are a parent, like, am I that kind of dad? And so many times I'm aware of the times that I am not a rock, that I have not been that constant presence, loyalty, love, um, constant faithfulness that I, that I need to be. And so that's going to happen this morning too because this is totally not fair to Peter. It's totally not fair to Pilate. But we're going to lay Peter and Jesus side by side, right? Let's see how that goes. Like, who's going to be the better rock, right? Or same thing with Pilate and Jesus. But the same thing would be true if we took Doug and Jesus, or you and Jesus. And so this is not a sermon to just crown our faces into the carpet, like we are horrible rocks. But what you're going to see as you go through this whole narrative, the whole story of what Jesus went through, 
is that Jesus is our rock, but that Jesus loves to come alongside those who, what's the opposite of a rock? What, maybe a pebble or dust? Like when we don't live up to our desire to be that rock, Jesus still circles back and, and, and redeems us and rescues us. So, so hang with it. There's, I feel like we're going to be reading a lot of the story this morning. I'm going to be kind of like a tour guide along the way. Did you see this? Did you notice that? But at the end of the day, the end of the morning, I want us to see that Jesus is our rock and that Jesus loves to come back and rescue those of us who also long to be rocks, but we find that we just, we constantly are dropping the ball. But, but, but Jesus will come back and redeem and rescue people like us. That's the hope of the gospel. So let me pray, and let's jump into this, this study. So, Jesus, I pray that you would be just our focus today, this, that all eyes would be on you and the life that you live uh, and that you lived, and even today, that you are the ascended Christ, you are reigning in heaven. This is the kind of life that you like to share with your people. And I pray that we would be people that would be open for you changing us and giving us your life. I just love that phrase, Jesus, about you in 1 Corinthians 15 that says that you are a life-giving force, a life-giving force. You are, this morning, Jesus, there's a room full of people, there's a bunch of people live streaming that just need the life that you give. So, so help us sponge this morning, help us learn from you and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start um, in your bulletin, in your outline. I've given you like a little timeline of what Jesus went through. And so th these are all estimates. You'll have different scholars pick that things happened at different times. But last week, we picked it up on Thursday evening around 6 o'clock of the Passion Week. And so Jesus would be crucified the next morning, starting at 9 o'clock Friday morning, that he breathed his last around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. So we're about Thursday at 6 o'clock. We looked at that last week. Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. After that, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they prayed there. And that actually launched this whole, uh, launched Jesus into this, the, the whole rhythm now of his trials and his arrest and the crucifixion. And we saw his powerful prayer last week where he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And we looked at that last week, how that was a constant battle that he, I really feel like the battle of Jesus going to the cross and being our savior was won on his knees in the garden. When he prayed that last prayer, not my will, but yours. Because we see Jesus in anguish, we see Jesus asking for another way, but at the end of that prayer, we see Jesus with a resolve to now walk through the next, next 12, 16, 18 hours with the resolve of fulfilling his identity as the Son of God who has come and to fulfill his mission to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so that's where we were last week. At the very end of the prayer, we saw that Jesus was arrested in the garden and now was taken into these times of trial. So that would be around 3 o'clock in the morning. And so bedded into that story of the trials and Jesus being, being eventually convicted to die. In the middle of those, um, we'll see Peter's denial. So we'll just start there. Okay, so again, this happened somewhere in the 3 to 6 a.m. window. And so in Luke 22, we see that when Jesus was with Peter and the disciples in the upper room, again, that was about Thursday around 6 o'clock, Jesus warned Peter. He said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day 
until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's making some bold claims right there. My roommate used to say, you're writing checks your body can't cash. Like it's that kind of thing. And so just making these big statements to Jesus and uh, Jesus has warned them, hey, before the morning happens, you're going to deny me three times. And so again, we go through the prayer time, the arrest. Remember in the garden, Peter's the guy that whipped out his sword and cut a guy's ear off. Like, I'll take you all on. So you're starting to see, oh yeah, maybe Peter's going to do that. Maybe he is going to fight with Jesus to the end. So you get to John 18, verse 15. And it says that Jesus, or Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Um, that other disciple was John, the guy that wrote this gospel. Okay, so it said, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're, you're also not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So first, first denial. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing around warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So first of all, you got to give Peter some credit here. The, the other nine disciples besides Peter and John all took off. When Jesus was arrested, they fled. So you're seeing Peter and John here kind of staying with Jesus. They're, 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 they're tagging along, trying to get as close to the trial as they can. Apparently, John's got some connections, and he was even able to get Peter into the courtyard, while even John himself got even closer to the action. So there's Peter. The first time he denied Jesus was to the servant girl letting people in and out of the courtyard. Now he's just trying to blend in. He's just trying to be part of the crowd. And so about an hour later after that first denial, we see verse 25 in John. It says, now Simon Peter was standing, and he's warming himself. And they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, and he said, I am not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where for whatever reason you've just kind of wanted to just hang back and just be part of the crowd and just, just kind of blend in and not be noticed. So Peter was trying to do uh, until, you know, especially the guy's like, hey, you know, if somebody cuts a relative's off, a ear off, you know, when that happens to you, uh, don't, don't you always tend to just try to re remember that face? Okay, who did that? Who cut Uncle Bob's ear off, right? So, so there's a guy there that's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're, and I don't know if Peter still had some ear blood on him or, or what it was, but there was something there, and they're starting to dig in. Hey, I think, I think you were with Jesus, and so again, he's just trying to huddle in the back and trying to be loyal to Jesus, but trying to stay hidden, and so finally he just, he denies him two more times. In fact, one of the other gospels, there is, there's no gospel that walks you through. Jesus goes through six trials. And so the way you go, the way you figure out the details of all six is you just kind of lay the four gospels side by side and find a timeline. One of the gospels tells us that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, that he did so, so emphatically is that he called down a curse of God on himself. He said, I am so certain that I don't know who Jesus is that would God damn me if I'm wrong. Like something like that. It would have been the kind of statement that everybody would have gone, whoa, like he's, he must be telling the truth because nobody would want the curse of God to come down on you. That's how emphatically Peter denied Jesus. Just as a side note, 
just looking ahead, that very curse that Peter called on himself is a curse that we all deserve. And how ironic that that was the curse that actually just hours later, Jesus died on the cross to absorb on himself because of his love for Peter and because of his love for us. So there was that big statement, everybody just backed off, and then the rooster crowed. And Luke's version of this, of this story tells us that Peter and Jesus caught eyes. That, that for however that happened, Jesus might have been inside a, a room and Peter just happened to look inside and see him. Or maybe Jesus was being moved from one location to the other. But just as soon as he said that, he saw Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to pause. Like, I don't want this, yeah, stupid Peter. Like, I don't want to be this uh, uh, Peter beatdown sermon. Because every one of us is in this, too. Every one of us has denied Christ. Um, even, even, in, even in small ways. Uh, we, we live in a time where to identify with Christ might not cost us our lives like it did Peter. But a lot, for some of us, that might cost you a reputation. You might work in a place where you're the only one who follows Jesus. You might be in a family where for you to start talking about Jesus could bring some heat your way or some friendships. And so I just wonder how many times we just kind of stay quiet. We just kind of lay low. Um, I wonder how many of us even deny Jesus in, in just ways we just kind of just kind of take for granted. Like, so we, some of us have known Jesus a long time. We know how much Jesus loves us. But then this last week, how many of us got freaked out about stuff? How many of us worried how many of us didn't trust him? How many of us this week, even though we would say, we'd pass a Jesus test 100%. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus all powerful? Yes. And is Jesus all wise? Does Jesus want to lead us? Yes, yes, yes. But then how many of us this week really just spent time with him, listening to him, learning from him, worshiping him? How many of us just kind of brushed him aside? So again, this isn't a, a, a Peter beatdown because we're like him. We'll make these big statements. We make big claims about our relationship with him, just like we do as, as in our other relationships. I'm going to be a great husband. I'm going to be a great dad. I'm going to be a great friend. And yet we deny Christ, and we deny the people in our lives. So uh, Peter is crushed. He leaves. Um, he's absolutely devastated at what he's done. And I can imagine even just talking to this many people this morning that some of us may have even had a week like that where we, our denial, our rejection, our, the way we live did not match the way we believe. Something happened this week where you can totally resonate right now with how Peter felt. Like, I have denied Christ. I have denied my friend. How could I have done that? So that's Peter. And we continue now with the trials. And like I said earlier, there's six trials. There were three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. I'm just going to kind of quickly summarize the Jewish trials. So when Jesus was arrested, really the driving force behind all of this were the Jewish religious leaders. They hated Jesus. And their end game out of all of this was to have Jesus be killed. And the way they were going to push that was to have the Romans be the ones to execute Jesus on the cross. And it's interesting, they had their schemes to make this happen, but really this needed to happen for God's prediction of Christ to come true. Jesus was predicted to die by being lifted up. And so many of the illusions in the Old Testament about how Jesus would die matched crucifixion. You know, what's interesting is that the Jewish leaders, you'll see them say, we, we can't, uh, condemn him to death. You must do it. When they're talking to the Roman 
authorities. You must be the ones to crucify him. Just a couple months later, actually the Jewish leaders did kill somebody. They killed a man named Stephen. And they didn't have to go get Roman authority to do that. They just pounded him with rocks and killed him. So there was something different about Jesus. Maybe on the human level, you could say, well, Jesus was really popular and this was Passover and there were maybe 100,000 people in Jerusalem to worship. So if we kill Jesus now, they could all turn on us. So that might've been their human reason for having the Romans crucify Jesus. But what you still see in all of this is that Jesus was the one going with the plan. He was resolved to follow the Father's plan. And the Father's plan was to have Jesus be crucified on a cross. So the first place where they take Jesus is a place called a, a man's home named Annas. And Annas used to be the high priest. He retired, but a lot of people still saw him as the authority, as the high priest. So that's where Jesus went first. There were some questions there about, hey, what are you teaching? Who are your followers? And Jesus made a statement like, hey, I've been teaching in public for a long time. You can go ask anybody that I've taught. And that's where one of the guards just punched Jesus and said, you don't talk to high priests like that. And so they didn't get anything from Jesus there. Then next he went to a place, um, an, an, another residence of the current high priest, and his name was Caiaphas. And it was in, in the presence of Caiaphas where if you've read these accounts before, a lot of false witnesses were coming forward. Can you imagine just how painful that would be to just stand there and hear accusation after accusation be made about you, lie after lie. But even as unjust as this trial was, they couldn't find two stories to elaborate. No two people could come up with the same thing. And finally, Caiaphas was so upset, just kind of wanted to end all of this. And he just blurted out a statement, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus didn't back down from his identity. He didn't try to squirm his way out of this. He was resolved to follow the Father's plan. And he said, yes, it is as you say. In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God of the mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel 7. He's referring to Psalm 110. Jesus knows his identity and he just blurts it out there. This is who I am. And finally, that was the only statement that they could get to, to hang something on Jesus. And so they charged him with, with blasphemy. That was the piece of evidence they needed. Jesus just said he was God. And so but the problem, he is God, right? So, but, but that's the only thing they could hang on him. He said he was God. And so from the Jewish side of things, that's what we needed. He's committing blasphemy, claiming he's God. And so what they, need, what they needed was something from the Roman side. Romans wouldn't care about the little Jewish religious laws. That wouldn't be enough to put somebody on a cross. But when Jesus claimed to be a king and a ruler, they had something there too. This would be a threat to Caesar. This would be a contradiction to the Roman rule of Caesar. So now we've got it. We've got the statement we needed. And so after Jesus made that statement is when they started punching him and beating him. It's where they blindfolded him and they would hit him and say, tell us who hit you, prophesy, and just made a mockery out of the whole deal. One, one way to characterize the whole Jewish trial was just, it was just filled with inconsistencies in injustice, that, that to even have a trial in the middle of the night was illegal. You didn't do that because people wouldn't think clearly. There wouldn't be a fair rendering of justice at that time. So they, they finished their trials. They had their conclusion. And then around six in the morning, they take him to the headquarters where Pilate lived, okay? And so that's where we're going to pick it up in John 18. Pilate was a Roman governor in charge of this area. His boss was Caesar. 
His role was basically to keep things quiet, to keep the peace. No noise is good noise, right, if you're Pilate. And so if you look at the back history of Pilate before this, he was already a man that was on probation. He was on thin ice. There'd been some incidents in his past that already put him into question. And so he couldn't afford one more strike against him. That's a little backstory here. The, the Jewish leaders come up to, to Pilate's house, but they, to his, um, the headquarters, but they can't enter. Listen to this. They can't enter his headquarters because if they did that, they would defile themselves from celebrating further Passover meals. So they were keeping that part of their law. They couldn't enter the, the home area of a Gentile and still celebrate Passover. They're keeping that little dinky law, but all the ones they were just running over when they were you know, condemning Jesus, it's just, it's a vast inconsistency. I just see Pilate like rolling his eyes. What are you guys doing? It's six in the morning. You got me out of bed. Now you won't even come into my place. Like he's probably just so sick and tired of dealing with Jews anyway, but he just had to kind of keep the quiet, right? Keep the peace. And so he goes out to meet them. And what you see in John 18 and 19 is kind of like a ping pong match. It's, it's inside of of, uh, of Pilate's courthouse, courthouse, the courtyard, and then outside. So he goes outside, and all the religious leaders are just downloading. We want this guy killed. This is what he's done. And so you pick it up in verse 33. Now Pilate brings Jesus into his headquarters and has a private conversation. So John 18, 33, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters again. He called Jesus, and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now in this whole dialogue, I want you to watch how Jesus just hangs on to his identity. He never backs down on who he is, and he never backs down on what he came to do. And I want you to watch that because that is how we also would become men and women, students, who will be rocks for the people in our lives. You have to cling to who you are, and you have to cling to why God has you on the planet, okay? Jesus is putting that on display for us. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, uh, do you say this? of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Watch this, because I think Jesus is kind of fishing for Pilate. Like, Pilate, do you believe? Pilate, do you want to know who I am? Do you want to know why I came? Okay, verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And listen to this, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Verse 37 is powerful. He said, I was born, for this purpose I was born, there you see the humanity of Christ. He was born to become one of us. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. So Jesus existed before he became human. He's fully God, fully man. You see both of those truths in that one statement. Again, Jesus just locked into who he is. I'm the God man, fully God, fully man. And I have come to pay ransom for the sins of the world. So he's locked onto who he is. So Pilate answers, well, what is truth? I think Peter, Pilate at this point is just kind of fed up with all the Jewish religious stuff, all the Roman stuff. He's just throwing his hands up. What is truth? Like, what, what is the real deal here? Instead of asking Jesus, tell me, who are you? What is the truth? He's just kind of blowing it off. He's kind of burned out at this point. 
And so when he had heard this, he went back outside. Now we're playing ping pong again. He's going outside to the religious leaders, and he tells them, you know what? I find no guilt in this man. And you'll see Pilate do two things to try to just let Jesus go. One of the other gospels tells us that Pilate can tell this is all about envy. This is all about the religious leaders are jealous of Jesus, and they just want to wipe him out. He sees right through their bluff. So he does two things. First, in John 19, verse 1, it says that, uh, that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Okay, there were two beatings Jesus went through during this trial with Pilate. This one, I think, was more of like a punishment one because you look at verse 2. It says that then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. His hope was, I'm just going to rough Jesus up some. We're going to beat him up. We're going to taunt him. We're going to mock him. We're going to put him in front of the, of the religious leaders. They'll go, Yeah, he got what he deserved. Good job. Laugh and go away. So that was his first offer. Okay, let's beat Jesus up. There was a second flogging and scourging that Jesus went through at the very end of the trial and right before the crucifixion. That was both, neither one of these were good things. That second one was just the incredibly excruciating beating. So he, Pilate does his first one, puts Jesus out in front, and says, okay, we've beat him up, we've roughed him up, this is good enough. They had nothing to do with it. They still wanted Jesus to be killed. The second one was that Jesus, uh, that Pilate offered an, uh, an, an alternative. It was every Passover that the custom was, hey, we'll release a prisoner to you. And he just kind of tried to stack the deck. Let's take, this will be a no-brainer. They'll pick Jesus because there's no way they'll pick this guy named Barabbas. Barabbas was the other one they offered. He was insurrectionist, murderer, robber, laid him side by side. Who would you choose? Thinking, of course, they're going to choose Jesus. And yet they chose Barabbas. And so verse 6, John 19, when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, so Pilate had just made these two offers. Let's get Jesus out of this. Verse 6, chief priests, officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, we have a law that according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Man, Pilate is freaking out at this point. We're told in Matthew that his wife had a dream about Jesus and sent Pilate a note and said, have nothing to do with that guy. Like, just get out of that. Get as far away from that trial as you can. And now when he hears this, that, that Jesus is, is saying he's God, he comes back, and now we're playing ping pong again. We go back into the courtyard in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered his headquarters again. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Just love again how Jesus doesn't back down who he is and whose authority he's trusting. He's trusting his father's authority, not Pilate's authority. And so again, as we <laughs> cautioned, don't just beat up Peter and say, oh, stupid Peter, you shouldn't have denied Jesus. 
it would be very easy for us to do the same thing with Pilate. Can you imagine standing face to face with Jesus, with the authority, the King of kings and Lord of lords? He's even reaching out to you. He's even like inviting you into a conversation about who he is and about his message. And, and Pilate just continually just pushes him, pushes him back. Curious, but afraid. Curious about, maybe a little intimidated by Jesus, but but not, not, not courageous enough, not curious enough to find out who Jesus really is. Pilate was looking for his security in his job. Pilate was looking for security in his position. Pilate was looking for security in who he could please. And so at that point, when push came to shove, Jesus was pushed out. He gave Jesus eventually over to them to be crucified. And what's really, what's really telling about Pilate's decision, obviously, from our perspective, absolutely foolish. But even within, within years of that decision, uh, his choice to trust human authority over Jesus was just completely exposed. So about a year later, after this, uh, Caiaphas was deposed as high priest. He'd been, he acted with Jesus the way he did to gain Caiaphas' favor. Caiaphas is out of leadership in a year, okay? At 35 AD, so just a few years after this, Pilate himself commits suicide. His life's over. About 30 years after this, the whole house of Annas and the high priest was just totally removed from that whole lineage. About 30 years later, there were 3,600 Jews who were flogged and crucified on the very same spot. And yet just three days after this trial, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came back from the dead and rose again and today, even and for all of eternity, reigns as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Obviously, an absolutely foolish choice to try to serve and please these temporary authorities, these temporary rulers. But guys, we do the same thing. That a lot of times the reason we don't go all in for Jesus is because of who we're trying to impress or who we're trying to fit in with or who we're trying to be cool in the, side, in the eyes of. And that is so fleeting and so passing. And yet there's Jesus, Jesus just patiently, continually revealing to us, here's who I am. I am the Son of God. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And I have come to present the truth. And so in contrast to Peter and to Pilate, Jesus stood strong because he knew his identity. He constantly just referred to things that had been said about him, who knew who he was, and he clung to his message and his mission of giving his life for sinners like you and me. So what I want us to catch too is sometimes when you just elevate the life of Jesus and look at him, sometimes we'll say, well, well he was God. That's why he could do all that. He was God. I, I want you to know that Jesus very clearly showed us how to live the kind of life he lived. He's fully God. He's also fully man. And I believe what we see in this week of trial is that Jesus is living it in his full humanity. And he's showing us, how did you do that? We saw last week that he prayed. And so prayer is something we can do. Prayer is available to us as well. And again, look at that short but powerful prayer that he prayed last week. I think what we catch from this week is that Jesus clung to the word of God. He clung to Daniel 7. He clung to, to Psalm 110. He clung to, listen to this, he clung to Isaiah 53 about his mission, that he was despised and rejected by men, that he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. How did Jesus, who coached Jesus to walk through the trials in the way that he did? Who coached him? Who trained him? I think it's that combination of prayer, of of crying out for the Father's help and the resolve that came from that. But I think also Jesus was a student of the word of God. And I just wonder if we have the same two things with as firmly grasped as Jesus did. Do we pray? Do we seek God? And could we look to scriptures to find our identity? Who are we? And what is our mission? Why are we here? But those two things were on clear display. And I want us to catch this, is that Jesus' mission was to die for sinners. Jesus died for the priests that were mocking him and treating him with injustice. Jesus died for Pilate We saw him reaching out for Pilate. And Jesus died for Peter. If I can take you back to that upper room, look at this verse again. We read it earlier where Jesus predicted. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And look at the next statement. And when you have turned again to strengthen your brothers, Jesus didn't just see the denials coming. But Jesus saw a time where Peter was going to turn and want to come back. Jesus, I need forgiveness. Jesus, I can't believe that I've denied you. And Jesus is already foretelling that I'm going to take you back because I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. You're going to still be on the team. And you see that post-resurrection. You see that in John 21 where Jesus reinstates Peter as the leader of the movement. But I just want us to all catch that that's the heart of Jesus. That's his mission is to take us when we fail him, when we deny him, he still died for us. In fact, in the book of Acts, when it starts describing the spread of the gospel, in Acts chapter two, it was Peter who got to preach that first sermon and 3,000 people believed. In Acts chapter four, it tells us that the number grew to 5,000. And in Acts chapter six, it said that the gospel was spreading so rapidly that even some of the priests were becoming part of the faith. Isn't that fascinating? Like some of the priests might even be the one mocking, you know, mocking them, slapping them. Who hit you? Prophesy. Some of those very guys may now, by Acts 6, be following Jesus as a Savior. That's, that's the heart of the gospel, you guys, that we are broken far more than we would ever imagine, but we're also more loved than we could ever, than we could ever dream. I like how C.S. Lewis says this, that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of those sins at whatever the cost to us, at whatever the cost to him. Jesus is relentless in his love to you. He is relentless to pursue you. He is relentless to forgive you. And he knows that when you fail him, that he will be there on the other side of that failure because he will be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. And so Peter's before and after story of Easter, his life was completely flipped. He went from being a denier, even denying to a servant girl, probably like a junior high age girl, denying Jesus there, 
to the end of his life, Peter was again asked to deny Jesus. And at that time, he, he stood with Jesus. He did not deny Jesus. And that resulted in him being crucified upside down. It cost him his life. But, but there was a different man in that time of questioning. And that man knew the reality of the risen Christ. That man knew the love and acceptance of Christ even after we have fallen. And so there's a completely different man changed by the gospel. He's a man that also, this is like next week stuff, that was so, so convinced of the resurrection. He would say, yeah, you can kill me, but I know what happens next. I saw what happened next to my friend Jesus. You guys killed him, but he's alive. And so, yeah, you can kill me, but I am not going to deny the eternal rule and reign, the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to close with this. This is from 1 Peter chapter 5. It was a letter written from Peter to Christians who were just struggling in their faith. Like, do we stay with Jesus or not? It's getting hard to follow Jesus. Listen to what this changed man says about how you continue to follow Jesus. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, he will exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Listen to verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's not saying, yeah, I just got there and uh, take over. He's just saying, this, this is what Jesus will do for you when you follow him, when you put your faith in him. This is what the gospel does in the life of a denier. This is how you take a Simon and you make him a Peter. This is how you take a weak person and you make him a rock, is that you expose him to Jesus Christ and who Jesus is and what he came to do. So let me uh, pray for us, and then I'm going to actually invite you into a time of prayer too. But, but Jesus, I pray this morning that this would be far from just a history lesson of what you did back then, but that today you would just invite us to look into who you are and what you have done. God, I'm speaking, I'm the first in this line, but I'm speaking to a room of deniers that there have been many times we have made claims about what we're gonna do for you or how we're gonna be a rock for others in our lives. And yet you have seen us fail. You have seen us fall. And yet I love, Jesus, your, your heart for sinners and the way that you died for us. I love Peter's words of transformation that you did in his life. And God, would you do that in, in our lives as well? Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.